Hey everyone, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library Podcast. This is episode 40. Today, our West Coast host, Stefan Morissette, is speaking with Bo Jarvis. Bo is the president of West Group Properties. They're one of the largest private real estate developers in Western Canada. Their discussion goes from talking about developing brownfield sites to managing office space in the wake of the pandemic to solving the housing crisis in Western Canada. You're really going to be able to take a lot from this episode. I certainly did. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everybody, to the Commercial Real Estate Library podcast. Uh, I'm Stefan Morissette, Vice President at Colliers International. Uh, I'm your West Coast host of the podcast, and with me today is Bo Jarvis. Bo has been in the real estate industry for just about 20 years, started off as a broker, and then moved on to the Vice President of Acquisitions and Development at one of the largest uh, residential and commercial developers in Vancouver. And then in 2014, he joined West Group uh, and quickly climbed the ranks, and last year became President of West Group. He's also the chair of the Urban Development Institute and uh, father of five children. And as we were just chatting about, I've got two young guys myself, and I don't know how you do it working from home with five kids, but uh, I respect it for sure. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, you know, I always like to start off by asking, you know, people what's their story. So, you know, you started off as a broker moved on to another developer and now you're with West Group. So kind of how did you get from where you started to, to where you are today, would you say? Um, that's a bit of a long story. I'll try and shorten it as much as possible, but um, abbreviate it. Um, I was a broker. I was born and raised in Whistler, British Columbia. So that is, um, I'm one of about five people my age who was actually born and raised there. Um, and my family was in, my mother actually opened the first real estate office in Whistler, the very first one with a couple other people. Uh, and my father kind of was in construction, built spec homes, you know, carpenter, that type of thing. Uh, small, small kind of subdivision development type stuff, nothing major at all. Um, and, um, so I was kind of around it all my life, uh, during, um, university, I worked for a civil, uh, contracting company called Whistler Excavations. Um, mm -hmm. so I was a pipe layer. Um, so I've just always been around real estate and construction. I was either on, on a job site or in the back of my mom's Volvo growing up while she was showing real estate. Um, and so I became, after a failed attempt to, um, join the tech sector during sort of the dot-com craze. Um, I kind of ran with my tail between my legs back home to Whistler and joined my mother selling real estate. So in Whistler, um, you're a jack of all trades. Uh, there was no real commercial representation from companies like yourselves, Colliers, uh, CBRE, Cushman, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was left to the smaller real estate firms in the Sea to Sky Corridor, namely Squamish, Whistler and Pemberton, to be jack of all trades. So you sold a multi-million dollar single family home, you did a retail lease, you did an industrial lease, um, and you sold development land. Um, and so um, I had a listing for a um, townhome site in Squamish, um, and it was a very bad time in the market actually in, um, in the Sea to Sky Corridor. Um, in fact, I don't think I had generated a commission in 10 months. Oh, wow. um, I had a, um, a newborn baby, um, and I had recently taken out a second mortgage on my property to pay the first mortgage. 
Um, and so I was, uh, you know, and so one night I was sitting there studying my listing for this townhome site in Squamish um, because I was going to go to the city the next day and meet with um, some folks, uh, David Evans from Cressy and Chris Evans from Ani, and they both moved on and they're doing different things now. But um, I need, I wanted to go down and I, I had to sell this site. So I had a bottle of tequila and my, my newborn upstairs and my wife um, uh, sleeping in this highly mortgaged house. Um, and I, I drove to Vancouver the next day, determined to try and sell this piece of land met with Cressy first and they declined and I met with Ani second and they uh, wrote an offer and, and then um, offered me a job. Um, and I turned them down first uh, because I was again, born and raised in Whistler. So I skied till like noon um, and, you know, then went into the office and did some real estate that could possibly be part of the reason I hadn't generated a commission in 10 months. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah, so they offered me, they made the offer better, and um, we moved to Vancouver, and I joined Ani, uh, started an acquisitions and development, and um, in their sort of, the next sort of t nine, eight or nine years at Ani was just that astronomical kind of growth phase, um, and we were just, you know, um, incredibly aggressive, and there's just a lot of young people there that were really ambitious and entrepreneurial, and um, you know, we just, we saw everything, we did everything, we weren't afraid of anything. And um, I just, it was a breeding ground for sort of education and real estate development mm -hmm. and real estate in general. There was a saying going around for a while that two years at Ani was anywhere else or one year anywhere else in that decade yeah. um, in terms of experience gained. Um, and then, yeah, moved over to West Group. Um, started as, uh, you know, overseeing all their development um, and kind of quickly started taking over portfolios within West Group, sales and marketing, construction, um, you know, interior design, et cetera. Um, and then last year um, moved into the role of um, president of the organization and uh, overseeing kind of all of the operations at West Group with a, you know, certainly with a very good team. Um, I, I wouldn't be overseeing anything without the team that I have surrounding me. Um, so that's kind of a, an abbreviated version of the story. There's all kinds of weird things that happen in between that probably are too much for this podcast to handle. Yeah. Maybe a different podcast. I feel like maybe Howard Stern would be <laughs> suited to hear about some of that stuff. Yeah, well, hopefully you got rid of that second mortgage on that house. I guess you moved to Vancouver, so you did. But... Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was able to pay that off. Awesome. Well, that's quite the story. Um, so I guess switching gears to West Group, you know, they've been family owned and operated for 50 years with, you know, Peter obviously being the the, the founder and patriarch. Um, you know, can you tell a bit of the story for the audience, maybe out east or elsewhere who isn't familiar with West Group of you know, who you are as a company and, and what your focus is? Sure. Yeah. Um, typical of uh, a lot of the um, privately held real estate development companies in the city of Vancouver, um, you know, uh, immigrant family moved to Vancouver um, and, you know, just kind of use their hands, built mm -hmm. things um, and built houses, single family houses. And, and this was Peter Wessex's father. Um, and then Peter, um, you know, there, he, he started, he didn't really, his father was involved in construction and, and sort of building and things like that. But Peter really um, I wouldn't say he started, you know, at second or third base or anything like that. Um, it was very modest what he started with. And mm -hmm. he really, um, 
he was a lawyer um, and he was in, in real estate and transactions in terms of his legal practice. And I think saw a lot of that with his background in construction and real estate, having grown up around it and really just started investing in assets. Um, and he was, um, you know, he was a, certainly a risk taker. I think, he, frankly, he still is a risk taker yeah. um, and, um, you know, grew uh, an organ, uh, uh, his sort of small, modest portfolio um, over time into a very significant portfolio. Um, and then along the way, engaged in what we'll call merchant activity. So he and a partner bought um, Park Lane Homes, which at the time was one of the largest single family home builders in Canada. Um, and they morphed that into, you know, continued on uh, for a long time with single family out in the suburbs, but also get it brought into the multifamily game, et cetera. Um, fast forward to around and, and West Group um, is a fully integrated, vertically integrated real estate development company. So we have our we have in-house construction, in-house property management, in-house interior design, sales, marketing. Um, you know, we just we just have the volume to be able to where it makes sense to to bring those services in-house where um, you know some don't have all of those services in-house. Um, and we also engage in all facets of real estate. So um, you know, our portfolio is made up of industrial, uh, retail, office, uh, purpose-built rental, and then we obviously engage in merchant activity. You know, we'll build anything that is real estate. So high-rise, low-rise, concrete, wood frame, townhomes, single-family, wherever there's an opportunity, you know, we like to say we'll make sense of it. Um, and um, so that's kind of West Group. And, and, and you know, fast forward to today. Um, where we're, you know, one of the largest privately held real estate development companies um, in Western Canada. And, um, you know, we're a, a going concern, I, I guess. So that's uh, that's kind of West Group in a nutshell. Yeah, it's a great summary. Um, you know, I, I've been working in the industry for just about 13 years, done a bunch of work with you guys and, you know, have such a fantastic brand and reputation. Um, you know, one thing that I've noticed is what, the company doesn't really shy away from is the quote unquote brownfield or you know environmentally contaminated sites on the larger scale of things that might take 5 10 15 years to come to fruition you know pacific link industrial park comes to mind i've done a bunch of business in there um you know and obviously in south vancouver uh one of the largest master plan residential communities you know in the city that's happening right now um, you know, what would you say is the thinking behind that? And, you know, again, you mentioned Peter's a risk taker. I assume that plays into it. Um, but, you know, is that still your strategy going forward? And, you know, what, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so we um, we definitely and there's a long history, certainly before I arrived as well, of of that sort of um, philosophy of, um, you know, really uh, getting getting involved in what I'll call Harrier deals, right? Where um, they're, they're brownfield, as you say, highly contaminated, um, or just really complex um, from a, a planning perspective, a financing perspective, or whatever. And I think that Peter, um, from I think that was sort of a strategy from the outset for him, or perhaps you know it wasn't even a strategy by design, but just how he is. Um, he he was attracted to those types of deals. He Perhaps you know he saw an angle, saw a way to navigate through um, the um, various issues um, that a lot of other people would sort of shy away from or deem as too risky. And and what comes with a lot of risk in many cases, not always, but in some in many cases, is is higher reward. 
Um, and so that's been certain. And, and as you do that over a period of time, you get more comfortable with a lot of these things. You, you come to understand how um, there are very typical ways to navigate through them. Um, and so we definitely continue that practice today um, where we, we um, are very attracted to the more complex um, real estate deals, transactions, um, more complex pieces of land, um, and, and, you know, we find a way we, we like, you know, we like to think that we have a level of expertise in navigating our way through those types of, of deals and opportunities. Um, so that is, you know, that is at the core of our, of who we are in terms of, um, how we operate in the marketplace. Um, so very much, um, a key strategy today. Awesome. And, and we'll be moving forward. For sure. Um, you know, Touching on the the office side of things, you guys own and, and manage a million square feet of office space, um, and obviously want to kind of get into the the COVID side of things here. I should note it's September 9th that we're recording this, so we're eight months into the the pandemic locally. Um, you know, how are you seeing the office side perform? You know, you're working from home. I'm in the office today for the first time in a month, but um, you know, I'm working from home for the most part. What is your take on the office market overall? Are you still in the acquisition mode on office? Or are you guys gonna you know, pull back a little bit? What are your thoughts on the office market? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. And to be honest, it's a tough question to answer because I think that, um, you know, long-term, I see our office market operating in a fairly stable way. I mean, I, I, I don't think that we're gonna, I think, I know there's a lot of talk right now. There's a lot of declarations by large organizations saying, you know, we're going remote um, and, and, you know, we're, 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 we're done with office space and, and all this kind of stuff. You know, I think that for me, it comes down to the human condition and humans desire interaction, face-to-face, -face, uh, collaboration and connection. And I don't think that you can get all three of the aforementioned in this format that you and I are currently working in, right, on a, on a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting. I just, you know, you can't get that. And so I, my belief is that we'll, you know, we'll find a vaccine for COVID, we'll work through this issue, and, you know, life will kind of go back to normal. And there's going to be that desire to you know, be in that office space, connecting with your colleagues, collaborating in person and, and moving forward with initiatives. Um, so I don't see, I see, I see, and I could be wrong, right? Like, oh God, I've been wrong so many times before with sort of predictions of the marketplace. Um, but, um, you know, I, I see as, I see COVID as sort of a little bit of a distraction in terms of the overall office market, in terms of supply and demand dynamics, um, in terms of, you know, companies like Amazon and, mm -hmm. and how they're, you know, going to be one of the biggest tenants, if not the biggest tenants in our downtown core and what that means for, you know, um, our economy and and the spinoffs for demand and office space and things like that. So uh, that kind of that's the prediction part of your question in terms of what we're doing. Um, I would say that, you know, we're opportunistic. Right. So we're we, we try and balance our portfolio. Um, and so right now, actually, our, our portfolio is not necessarily balanced um, in the we have we have a, a uh, we're trying to grow our purpose built rent uh, rental component okay. of the portfolio. Um, but that said, if there's an office opportunity that we deem as, um, you know, viable, 
um, we will chase it down, you know, like no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, uh, you know, between Mount Pleasant, um, New Westminster, you know, um, I guess mostly there, you know, we have over uh, a million and a half square feet of office and, you know, call it in Mount Pleasant, the I-1, I-2, the quasi-industrial stuff, but we got over a million and a half square feet of uh, office yet to build in our portfolio and in our, in our development pipeline. So, you know, we're still obviously bullish on the market to a degree, but I can't say to you, you know, um, you know, we're out there seeking office yeah. mandates on SkyTrain stations in Burnaby right now. <laughs> But it's if there's an opportunity in office, we're there to have a look at it. Yeah, and you're basically saying that the sky isn't falling as some people do predict. And yeah, you know, you hear about Twitter and all these groups saying we're going to be remote forever. But you know, to your point, I was in here today with a mask on, and I walked around both floors, and I talked to about 11 different brokers, and you know, caught up with everybody, you know, had a good time, and also talked about a few different deals that may have not, you know, been chatted about if I wasn't in the office. So. I'm uh, I'm long-term bullish and, and eager to be in the office more often when I can be when there's a vaccine. So I definitely well, agree. And, with you. and you know, if you're any, if anybody's out there like me, like I need to get the hell out of my house and <laughs> and into and like down to the office to focus and work and you know go for a decent lunch <laughs> yeah. or a coffee or whatever, right? Like yeah. I'm being yeah. a little bit facetious, but I, I do no. think that. You know, working from home, I you know I, I do see that there there being a, a desired flexibility by some to have the opportunity to work from home on mm-hmm. occasion, as it suits them. We're already having people in our organization ask for that flexibility, so I see that as something. But I don't think that's going to diminish the need for office space. Yeah, I actually totally agree. Um, you know, switching over to the retail side, uh, you know, I guess a lot of the retail owned by you guys is in kind of a mixed use, you know, ground floor capacity, but how has your retail been performing and, you know, what are your thoughts on the retail market as well? Um, the retail, so retail is something that in our portfolio, the vast majority of it is definitely ancillary to a predominant use in a building. So for example, you know, retail at the base of a residential tower or building, mm-hmm. retail at the base of an office building. Um, you know, we do have a couple of small um, shopping center, not not large by any means, um, but or or we have retail that is, you know, it's a redevelopment play. Mm-hmm. So predominantly the retail in our portfolio is made up of what I just described. I wouldn't say that we're incredibly bullish on retail, um, and that's been, you know, I would say that that's been the case for, you know, a decade now. Um, I think that there are absolutely opportunities in retail and there always will be in certain locations and for certain uses. But we're obviously seeing a shift, um, you know, out there. And, and COVID has really, um, you know, um, brought that, has really shed light on on that, right, as as you know, stores are closing down as a result of people not being able to go out in public or you're, you're, you're isolating or whatever. And, you know, you're, you're, as a, you're, you still have a desire to shop or you still have needs and you're, you're really doing that online. Right. And so yeah. I think it's, um, it's, it's really demonstrated that, you know, even for those that are core, you know, I'm not an online shopper, right. I would way rather go into a store, try something on, 
have a quick transaction and call it a day. Um, but even for someone like me, I'm, I'm getting more used to online shopping, right? And so I really think that that, that can't be ignored in terms of the future of the real estate market as it pertains to retail. Um, but I do think that there are, there will always be opportunities in retail, right? Like the dentist needs to locate somewhere. The insurance yeah. brokerage needs to locate somewhere. The chiropractor, like service retail, right? Like there's the, you can't, there's always a, a need for that type of, of um, commercial amenity. But um, yeah, so our portfolio, the retail function are, is actually, we're, we're not doing too poorly. Again, probably because we don't have too much of it as compared to others. Um, but it's not something that we're, I would say, actively hunting. Okay, interesting. Um, we touched on this uh, before the podcast started, but um, you're the chair of UDI. Uh, right before this, I was watching the UDI luncheon, which was in January 30th of this year. Uh, you know, it was very interesting to, to watch your take on the market. And obviously, the biggest challenge, I think, with everybody in the development community is, is the regulatory bodies and the amount of challenges that come with that. Um, you know, so touching on the res side, obviously, the focus has been on from governments uh, diminishing the demand to try to lower prices. But when a house costs, you know, 1.3 million, it goes down to 1.2. Is that affordable? Well, no. So the issue everyone seems to have is on the supply side. Uh, January of this year, that was an issue. It was a, an issue last year. I imagine it's only gotten worse with COVID and things being stagnant and slowed down. I'm just curious, you know, what is your take on the, you know, the UDI side being the chair and, and has anything improved and, and where are we going moving forward on the res side, you think? Yeah, so I'll try and answer. You asked a few questions there. So, I mean, you know, from a policy perspective and a regulatory regime, has anything improved? Um, I think absolutely the answer is no. <laughs> um, I think that we are at an inflection point in time right now where it's it's a it's like a perfect storm of some of the most complex issues that we're all trying to engage on and solve. So we have a housing affordability crisis. We have a climate crisis. We have indigenous reconciliation that's in crisis. We have, you know, um, an inequality crisis. Um, and you know we're we're all and and we're all trying to work on this and collaborate on this and engage and and develop policies to help figure this out. And the issue is is the policies not only are they clashing with one another, they're not it's how do you prioritize that, right? So and then you and so drill down to housing, and the same thing's happening. So you know, um, uh, locally and with housing. So, for example, uh, heritage. People want to save heritage, right? They want to. It's it's a and 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 it's really important. And it is really important, right? I, I agree. But so now there's policies that are. It's really important to develop policy to save our heritage. Um, the urban uh, tree canopy in the city of Vancouver. Extremely important to save the urban tree canopy. Let's. We got to develop policies to do that. We have to enact these policies. Um, zero emissions. We want to be zero emissions and zero GHG, GHG emissions and, and, and low, zero carbon by 20 whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Let's develop policies. Let's do all that. Oh, we have a housing crisis. So when you try to navigate through the regulatory regime and deliver affordable housing, um, which seems to be a high priority, 
um, based on all the levels of government's, you know, um, election platforms. Um, how, okay, do we have a tree crisis? Do we have a heritage crisis? Do we have a, do we have a building shadowing crisis? Yeah. Or do we have a housing crisis, right? Which crisis do we have and how do we prioritize that? So um, again, when you, for all of those reasons and, and the sort of the examples I just gave, it's never been more difficult or more challenging, certainly in my time, to deliver housing uh, to meet demand, right? It's just when you're taking up to six years to turn the first key on a unit of housing, whether it be social housing, under market rental, luxury condominium, when it takes six years to turn the first key to get that supply to market, it's just like, it's egregious. Yeah. And so um, from a UDI perspective, you know, we're having a, a very difficult time trying to advocate for policy that would help, you know, alleviate the affordability crisis. And, and it's hard, right? Like, because we're, there's a lack of trust. We're the big bad developer. We're the develop, UDI is a developer, uh, you know, representative lobby group, whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, of course the developers are going to say increase the supply. Of course the developers are going to say this or that. So, you know, there's a trust issue and that's on the development community. Frankly, I think that the development community could have done a much better job of advocating for itself um, you know, during the good times when it wasn't so problematic. And and when I say that, I mean that, you know, the developers are the ones that um, have been delivering all the community centers and financing new swimming pools and hockey rinks and infrastructure, new sewage pump stations, all this kind of stuff. Yet, you know, um, the average person on the street thinks it's their tax dollars at work, um, yeah. but it's not necessarily right. And so, but but the industry hasn't done a good job of of explaining that and educating either right so it's it's on us um so i i think it's it's never been worse in terms of trying to navigate that um so that's kind of the udi front on the residential um com, you know just the market side of things and supply and demand and things like that um you know i go to some easy stats from a pre-sale perspective um so pre-sale condominiums townhomes pre-sale homes um I think it's 2016, 17, and 18. The average pre-sales uh, absorption in the Lower Mainland of BC was about 17,000 units a year. In 2019, it was about 7,500 7, units. So mm -hmm. dramatically reduced. And then in two, 2020, so far, I think you know about two months ago, we were talking about it being about 2,400 units of absorption on the pre-sale market. So um, you know we are. We are the the supply is by by virtue of that going to be limited as we move forward, right? Mm. Um, and and a lot of that has to do with all you know it has to do with a ton of government intervention. Certainly in 2019, right? Government intervention definitely you know slowed the market down. Um, and then obviously COVID and a worldwide pandemic and economic crisis to boot really um, has hammered us in 2020. So, um, you know, I do think that supply is a major issue. And, you know, I just got out of a big workshop with that's produced by CMHC and Generation Squeeze. And there's like 50 people from all, you know, university professors, um, uh, non-market housing providers, and myself and one other uh, development community representative. 
and you know it's it's so interesting to see a, a group of a group of people as diverse of the, as that try to find common ground right because yeah. it's like ideals and pragmatism and they just you know um and and there's there's the side of it where you know government all housing should be subsidized housing should be socialized and then it's sort of like well you know where's the money going to come from for that yeah. and you know well we'll raise taxes or you know and and it's this it's just, and I, I think oftentimes, and again, everybody will say, oh, it's of course what the developer will say. I think that we sort of forget about this age old science called economics. Yeah. And one of the core principles of economics, you know, as it relates to price being supply and demand. And, um, you know, an anecdotal sort of um, component of supply and demand sort of proving this, you know, centuries old theory um, is unfolding as we speak in the West End of Vancouver, where yeah. the city of Vancouver um, created the West End Plan, and um, they, uh, as a, as you know, in order to go and build a, a condominium tower or whatever, you had to deliver uh, inclusionary housing, and there was also a, a high level of requirement for rental housing that's purpose built and things like that. And so um, it took 10 years, but now a lot of that product is, you know, being delivered. It's coming to fruition. The plan's coming to fruition. And so there's a whole bunch of older assets, as you well know, in the West End, um, purpose-built rental assets, whether it's walk-up wood frame or even old high-rises and things like that. We happen to own a few of them. Um, but what's happening is a lot of people are jumping to the newer product. And mm -hmm. in many cases, they're happy to pay more for it. And so what's happening with the older product? Well, vacancy is increasing and we're having to lower our rents. And so um, the laws of supply and demand are alive and well in the West End of Vancouver. Um, and I and sometimes like it, it's, you know, oh, of course the developer is going to say that or, you know, oh, supply, it's always supply is the answer. But I, I you know, it is the answer. <laughs> um, and of course, there's many other aspects like um, income growth, um, as it relates to the cost of housing, you know, the gap has increased dramatically mm -hmm. over the last couple of decades, et cetera, right? There's income inequality and there's a lot of different things at play. But the fact, like there is many, there are many studies out there um, that tie the cost of housing to the regulatory regime in which that housing exists, right? And we operate in an intense regulatory regime, intense, like, nonsensical in many cases and look at our cost of housing right yeah so i don't know that's a very long-winded answer to your question and i kind of went all over the place but i hope i answered it no it's some great insights you know and, and i'm you know i'm a huge believer in increasing supply and i'm not a developer but you know looking at friends and my sister and my I two kids and three nephews it's like where are they going to be able to live anywhere near me in 15 to 20 years if they don't get given half a million dollars to be able to buy their first condo and on the rental side you know rental rates are going to get so out of hand if we don't build more of it to a point where it's just not even affordable you know and these talk about amazon you're going to have a few thousand people making six figures moving to the city and they're going to all need to live somewhere as well so um, i hope it gets better and it's going to take a long time but obviously through hard work that you guys are doing at udi you know hopefully that improves it and moves the needle a little bit sooner than later, for sure. 
Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the industrial side, my asset class and my favorite type of real estate. Um, you know, you guys own 1.7 million square feet of existing product to date, but you also have 70 acres of land still to develop. Um, you know, obviously I, I would be bullish on the industrial side, but I'm curious your take on things and, and what do you see happening in your portfolio on the industrial market? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it yourself. Industrial is your favorite real estate. It's one of my favorite real estate um, categories as well, or asset classes. Um, you know, I think that uh, there's so much I can say about industrial. I mean, um, you industrial had to move in terms of the market, right? It was this sort of um, you could you could build it for cheap. You had lease rates in the single digits for years, like decades. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of the operators, the 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 lease cost was a very it was a fraction of their overall operating costs, right? And so um, you know a lot of people invested in industrial, and certainly you know like the BDs and Onis and ourselves and Bozos and Concert, like all these organizations invested in industrial because it was a very, you know quite a basic operating model. It was simple to build. It was fairly straightforward. Usually you were buying zoned land, right? You're not having to take it through a major rezoning. So yeah. the timeline to um, execute and have your asset up and running was short. Um, and then, um, you know, it, we operating it was also quite simple. It is still quite simple, right? It, it really operates itself. It's not like, um, you know, it's not like a rental building where yeah. you're dealing with all kinds of different personalities and renters and things like that. So, um, and, and fa you know, fast forward to where we are today and industrials through the roof. Lease mm -hmm. rates are, you know, easy double digits in almost all markets or sub markets in the lower mainland. Um, you know, the cost to build industrial has, has gone up significantly. Um, and, you know, it, it, the, the tenants, um, there's certainly, some lack of ability to pay some of these new rates, but I would say for the most part, certainly some operators that are medium and large, there's no there's no real choice. And again, it was really a fraction of their operating costs previously. So, yeah. um, you know, based on all of the aforementioned, um, you know, we are absolutely bullish in the industrial market long term, and and we're a port city, right? And also, like you look at from a land perspective. We're so constrained, right? We have uh, geographically, we have the mountains, we have the water, and we have the agricultural land reserve. And so we're, we're there is very, very little industrial land left that has not been, um, you know, executed on, for lack of a better way to put it. And so that that by virtue of that, it's gonna, you know, it it really stabilizes and buoys the market um, as well. And so. Um, you know, I love the industrial market for all the reasons I just mentioned. I would love to find more opportunities in the industrial market, but, um, you know, they're few and far between. And obviously there's the strata kind of component that's been driving up land costs. And, you know, we don't, we haven't quite played in that arena yet in terms of industrial strata. It's not that we wouldn't do it. Um, I just sometimes question, I feel like we're a little bit late to the game, to be honest. Um, there's some great operators that are doing industrial strata <clears throat> that have been for a long time, uh, BD, Conwest, these types of guys. And, um, you know, they bought their land well. And now you're seeing some numbers that are pretty crazy. And and and, and how deep is that market? Because, um, you know, the big users, they don't want that asset on their balance sheet. 
the medium users are medium-sized users are mostly reinvesting in their operation, and so it's a lot of medium to small bay that are mm -hmm. kind of the buyers. Um, and so, you know, how deep is that? But you know, people are definitely making it work um, and doing really well at it. But um, that's sort of a component that we haven't dipped our toes in to a, a great extent yet. But lo I love industrial. I love it long term. I love it short term. <laughs> for all yeah. those reasons. Obviously, I've been in the industrial game for 13 years, and it's it's treated me well, and I definitely uh, am bullish on it going forward. And I think there's still room for growth on the rental rate side. Like like you talked about in the balance sheet, it's usually a low single-digit percentage of overall costs. So if it goes from eight bucks a foot to 12 bucks a foot, which it has over the last three or four years, you know you're only really seeing an increase of a, a fraction percentage on the balance sheet. Um, and you know the, the other side of this is I think going forward as retail switches to more direct to consumer, you know, groups that are used to paying 20, 30 bucks a foot on a retail big box, you know, footprint that can go now pay 12 or 13 for a 32 foot clear warehouse. And that's why I think you're seeing all these larger Amazon and the likes uh, lease so much space. They just did another 400,000 square feet apparently in Richmond and 100 and something thousand in Langley. Um, Amazon did. And so I just think that that's going to keep pushing rates up and, and keep it going forward. Um, you touched on the constrained land supply we have in Vancouver, uh, which kind of leads me, segues into the next question, which is multi-story. So, you know, typically we've seen on the strata side, you know, office on one level or industrial on the first couple levels, office on a couple levels. Um, but on the bigger side of things, you know, Oxford's now doing a 700,000 square foot building in South Burnaby. And I believe you guys are looking at it in, in Coquitlam. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on multi-story industrial with the constrained land supply here? I think that um, I think that you're going to see um, multi-story warehouse industrial become more prevalent. I don't think that we have an option at this point in time to not do that. And if we're to meet the demand um, that exists out there and I think will continue to exist. Um, we, we have a, an active development permit application in, uh, in Coquitlam uh, for um, multi-story industrial. Um, and, you know, we, it, it's very like industrial, although it's simple and bread and butter, it's also like, you know, there's a, there's a high, people don't like change. <laughs> and so you really got to have a well thought out strategy if you're going to go multi-story mm -hmm. industrial, you got to think about your vertical circulation. Are you allowing trucks to go up on the second floor on the roof or is, you know, or are you going to have all your loading down on the ground and you're going to force people to use that vertical circulation? Um, you know, how do your FSR exclusions work? Uh, like there's so many different aspects as soon as you take it from that traditional sort of single story model to a, uh, I say traditional, and we'll get back to that point in a second, traditional in, in our lifetime. Um, right because but there it's it anyway it is it, it it becomes a little bit more complex and you really have to think it out and we did a ton of research we talked to a lot of our tenants we talked to a lot of our peers in the industry um went and looked at a few you know there's a few of these types of assets that are operating i think of the prologis um development south of the border um and so uh yeah i i do think that um that is one of the only ways in the interim that we will be dealing with the shortage of land um, on the industrial side. I think long-term, you know, we need to be having deeper levels of conversation about the agricultural land reserve um, and, and the whole sort of 
you know, eco economic, uh, eco industrial land and how it um, contributes to the economy. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're having a robust enough conversation uh, in that regard. And I don't mean like tear up all the farms and build warehouses. I don't mean that at all. But, you know, one of the interesting sort of ironies that I like to talk about is, you know, I, I mentioned to you earlier, um, I, I was born and raised in Whistler and Whistler and Pemberton were one community and Pemberton is a sort of a agriculture and, and forestry community. And I grew up, you know, hanging out on lots of my friends' farms and stuff like that. And I can tell you what goes on those farms in many cases is a lot dirtier than what goes on in our warehouse sites. Right. So in terms of like tractor oil leaking into the soil and pesticides and all this kind of stuff, like our warehouse operations are clean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, I think that there's a long-term uh, conversation that really we need to engage in and, and, get, and really go deep. And it's a hard conversation to have politically and otherwise. Uh, going back to that comment about tradition and traditional forms of industrial, if we go back to like early 1900s, late 1800s or whatever, and we go to Chicago, we go to Boston, we go to New York, stacked industrial, that's all they knew, right? Mm -hmm. You go to the ports and and you had these old warehouse buildings that were three, four, seven, eight stories with big freight elevators going vertical up and down. And, and, and I think that, you know, we need to probably start to, I, I think you're gonna start to see a bit of a renaissance of that perhaps. And I think we really need to start thinking about that and and you're starting to see that in in Mount Pleasant and the Falls Creek Flats in the city of Vancouver with the I zones I1 and I2 um, where we're starting to really think out vertical industrial and and I don't mean like warehousing distribution but industrial type uses that are starting to become a little bit more flexible but they're stacked on many levels so um yeah that's that's what I think about um multi-level industrial. I'm, I'm, I, geez, I feel like I'm really long-winded with my answers, but. <laughs> no, it's great. You know, you know I'm, I'm interested to see too, like how Coquitlam goes, how Oxford goes. Um, you know, I, I think obviously the key has got to be, it's typically closer into the core, into the city for it to make the economics to make sense. Because my understanding is it costs more per square foot, even when you spread it over two levels to build uh, significantly more. And so you're going to have to see really high rental rates to make sense of it economically, I think, or have a historical land base that's that's quite a ways old. Yeah, I think you're going to see it predominantly in kind of last mile. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that said, the stuff we're doing in Coquitlam, it's, I mean, it's distribution, mostly, probably, um, and warehousing on the main floor and then small bay on the second floor and we have truck access up to the second floor for those small bay users so we're kind of playing in two markets there yeah um, on one site um, by design so you know um last mile i think you're going to predominantly see this sort of multi-level industrial format but i do think you'll see some of it on sites that can handle it in larger warehouse kind of distribution format yeah for sure. Outside of um, the last mile. Cool. Well, for my last question, uh, you know, crystal ball prediction time. Uh, I mentioned I watched the UDI thing and the first question was, you know, what do you think the biggest risk to the real estate market is going to be globally this year? And I think it had, you know, COVID had just left Wuhan that week and nobody predicted a global pandemic. But uh, here we are. Um, you know, obviously we touched on every different asset class, but for the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months, 
uh, you know, where are you focusing your energy and time from a, an acquisition standpoint? Like, what's your priority? Uh, and, you know, what are your thoughts overall on the Vancouver and local real estate market for the next year or two? Um, so right now, <clears throat> in terms of acquisitions, um, I would say our priority is sort of uh, being patient because, um, you know, you're seeing a, you're, you're starting to see some distress out there. You're starting to see some cracks in the system. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of foreign capital that came into our market. And um, in terms of investment, right, I don't mean I'm not talking about buying single family homes and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about foreign capital <clears throat> in investment in real estate development opportunities. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, we operate in a very complex, uh, um, nuanced market here in Vancouver, and I would call it one of the most advanced real estate markets in the world. <clears throat> and, and so we're starting to see some of that fracture now, right? Because it's harder, the market changed, it's not as robust, it's not as hot, there was a ton of government intervention, and then now, like you said, you know, we have COVID. So we're really kind of trying to be patient to to see what comes of all of that in terms of an acquisition strategy, um, and you know, looking at distressed opportunities and things like that. We, as as a matter of, you know, strategy, we don't really participate in a lot of the tenders that go on out there, the competitive bidding processes. We've, um, you know, uh, we've, I think, spent about $500 million in acquisitions over the last five, six years, and not one of those has been, you know, a, a bid tender process. I would say almost 95% of that has been private. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how we operate in terms of acquisitions. Um, in terms of <clears throat> the Vancouver real estate market over the next one to two years, you know, it was actually... Um, Peter Wessick that he he mentioned this is is if you look at some of the you know um, largest cities in the world and if you kind of treat them like a company and then you look at their performance over some of the largest indexes in the world the Dow Jones Nasdaq or whatever these cities have either well they've generally outperformed those indexes um, and so. You're really you're in if you think about it that way, and you think about Vancouver in the long term, it really has a lot going for it. Um, mm -hmm. And and you know we're a desirable place to be. Um, we have we have we have you know stable land laws. I operated very briefly in Vietnam uh, with Ani. Uh, we opened an <laughs> no. office there and closed it in the same year. But you know you want to talk about stability in terms of the banking system. And, and the land title system, right? So we have a very stable banking system as evidence coming out of 07, 08. We have a very stable land title system. We have rule of law. Although in the last you know, couple of years with the, these levels of government, you know, some of that's been called into question, but still right. on a worldwide basis, I would say we have stability and a lot of it. And that coupled with you know, our natural beauty here, um, our sort of you know, growing economy, um, I, I, I believe in Vancouver over the long term, and, and I always will. And I, I would say that that goes for all market segments, um, you know, save and except for the retail like we talked about. But I think that these dynamics will support a robust and stable real estate market into the future. I, I don't know how, you know, we have to deal with the commoditization of housing. We have to think about that. We have to talk about that. Um, I, I certainly would prefer to, to operate in a more stable 
real estate market where we are bringing product to market. We are selling it out at a pace. We are building it. We are delivering it. And we are moving on to the next one. Yeah. I would rather not sell a project out in a weekend and, you know, just have this frenzy. I, I don't think that that is a healthy place to be or I don't think it's sustainable. So that's a conversation that we need to have with ourselves. But again, um, in the, certainly in the, in the next one to two years and over the long term, I'm a big believer in our market. And I say Vancouver, I mean greater Vancouver. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's kind of how I feel. Um, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll end it on that with a we'll see because I think we will see in the next uh, the next year will be interesting. But I, I totally agree with you. Born and raised in Vancouver, right in the heart of it, outside of Granville Island, and uh, I'm a massive fan of this city and always will be. And I think that if anything, this pandemic has shed light, you know, to anybody paying attention to here on on how great of a place this is to live. You know, whether it's how we handled the pandemic as a as a nation and as a province, or whether it's, you know, the fact that we can go outside despite the rain and enjoy the beauty, um, you know, while being socially distanced. So I think this is a fantastic place to live and, and operate. And I think that going forward, uh, we're going to do well. So, but with that, thank you so much for your time. That was incredibly insightful and uh, hugely valuable to me. So I, I think our audience will find the same and I really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. This is the end of the podcast. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating and share it with your friends. And also let us know in the comments who you'd like to hear from next. Have a great day.